Is there a difference between usury, which the Bible says is wrong, and the interest that banks and other institutions charge? It's the cross-culture Q&A question. Pastor Clay's answer is coming up right after this week's Crosswalk. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. It is the peace of Christ, not the world's idea of peace, not your own idea of peace, which, by the way, usually means if everything's going okay and nothing's wrong, then I have peace. That is very different from God's idea of the peace of Christ. What does it mean to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart? And just as importantly, how do you know when you have it? And if you are in the will of God, you will experience the peace of God. And if you get out of the will of God, intentionally or unintentionally, you will lose that peace. I'm Rick Freeman. Hello again and welcome to Crosswalk. As we continue in our series entitled Colossians, it's all about him. We're in chapter 3 of the book of Colossians. It's a section Pastor Clay has identified as Christ practiced. The Apostle Paul has moved from the more theological section in the first half of his letter to the more practical section. Followers of Jesus aren't called to just know the right things. They're called to live the right things, to live the way Christ would want us to. In this message and in next week's message, Pastor Clay is going to be asking us four very important questions based on verses 15 through 17 of Colossians chapter 3. And if you won't be honest with yourself in the answering of these questions, then it won't make any difference. It won't matter. How we answer those questions will go a long way toward helping us understand where we are in our walk with Jesus. Now here's Pastor Clay with this week's message. There's a story uh, about an evangelist who lived uh, many, many, many years ago. Now, an evangelist, if you're, not, if you're not familiar with that term, an evangelist is a person that goes around uh, from town to town, city to city, church to church, preaching what are sometimes uh, known as revival-type messages. An evangelist is different from a pastor. A pastor... Um, leads, teaches, guides over one flock, to use the sheep metaphor that the Bible so often does. And the word pastor means that. It means shepherd or under-shepherd. Um, a pastor is, stays put, uh, leads and guides and invests in these people's lives. An evangelist um, blows into town and, and uh, lets everybody have it and blows back out of town. <laughs> He's got the good job. No, um, we had an evangelist one time, this was years ago in our, in our uh, church, where Cindy and I were members in Florida, uh, this, and I wasn't this long before I was in ministry or anything, and um, uh, the guy's name was Rocky, Rocky Freeman, never forget this, you know, he was, uh, he was a converted uh, Jew, he'd, he'd been raised Orthodox Jew, he'd rebelled against God, he'd, he'd, at one time he was running the largest prostitution ring on the east coast of the United States, <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, he got radically saved, gave his life to Christ, and became this evangelist, you know. And so, you know, there was just something about this guy. You know, he had had ties to the mob and all this other kind of stuff. Um, and so his first, first Sunday there, uh, he starts up and, he's, and he starts getting, I mean, he starts laying into the people that, um, 
that he's laying into. And uh, it's, it's like, he says, yeah, y'all, y'all, y'all come here. Uh, and it was, there were a lot of people that came down during the winter months to Florida. And, you know, uh, we called them snowbirds. And they came and hung out part of the, the year. And that wasn't a derogatory term. They, just, they were just used to snow. And uh, so he said, yeah, y'all come in here. He said, you don't come to Sunday school. Uh, you come in here early to get the best seats. And uh, he, I mean, he's just going at him. He says, and then in a little while when the offering plate goes by, you're going to throw a dollar or two in there and act like you're all spirit. And uh, uh, the people's eyes are like, and so here, and the guy says, hey, hey, and I guess he could tell that it's kind of shocking. And he says, hey, I don't care. And he opens his, his vest. He's got, you know, three-piece suit on. He opens his vest. All evangelists ought to have a three-piece suit. And he opens his vest and he says, I got a round trip ticket. He points to his airline ticket. I'm out of here in a few days. That's evangelists. That's what they do. I don't, know how I, I, I don't know how I got off on that story. But anyway, uh, there was this evangelist uh, many, many, many years ago by the name of John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist Church. So uh, Wesley was an evangelist. He traveled around. He, he, just, he traveled thousands of miles every year on horseback. This was many, many years ago. Uh, preached at hundreds and hundreds of churches every year. Year And uh, so uh, Wesley is coming into town. He's going to preach at this one particular uh, church. Now, in those days, uh, revivals uh, tended to be much more than what churches do uh, today. Nowadays, traditionally, churches have revivals. They usually run like Sunday through Wednesday. That's about as long, it seems like, as uh, we can get folks to come back, you know, that, that many times. Well, in, in those days, uh, they'd have services every uh, every day slash or, or night or combination thereof, services would last at least two to three hours at a time. Um, and they would go on usually for a minimum of two weeks at a time. You know, so, some of us in here may be a little older, may remember when, when revivals used to go like two weeks at a time. At least two weeks at a time that they would go on. Now, Wesley had become uh, fairly uh, famous at this point in his life and was well-known. And so the church was really looking forward to uh, John Wesley coming and preaching the word to them and all this kind of stuff. And so um, uh, he arrives and everybody's excited and he gets up to his first uh, Sunday there, or first service, and he begins to speak. And he did what they usually did back in those days. They would introduce their sermons. And so he would say, I would like to speak to you today. Here's what Wesley said. He said, I'd like to speak to you today on the subject of, ye must be born again. And John Wesley launches into this, this powerful and passionate message based on Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where Jesus told Nicodemus, this very religious man, this very good man, this man who claimed already that he believed in Jesus. And in John chapter 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. In other words, obviously, Nicodemus had been born once, physically. And Jesus was telling him he needed to be born a second time, spiritually. He needed to enter into a relationship with the living God. And it was a conscious decision that Nicodemus had to make. It didn't matter how good he was. It didn't matter how all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, by the way... That's still true today. A person, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter if you grew up going to church nine months before you were born, as the old saying goes. It, none of that stuff matters. Uh, there has to come a point in your life where you recognize that you are a sinner, that that sin separates you from a holy God, and by faith you must 
believed that Jesus Christ, even though it was an event that occurred 2,000 years ago, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, conquered death, rose from the grave as evidence of his victory over your sin and over death and over the grave. And you must uh, place your faith in that finished work on the cross. That's, that's the new birth experience. That's entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That hasn't changed. That's the message that Jesus gave to Nicodemus, and that's the message that Wesley delivered to the church that day. And apparently, by all accounts, the message was very well received. Well, the next service, um, all the things, whatever they normally go through, and then came time for uh, John Wesley to preach, and he got up, and he stood up again. He said, I'd like to speak to you today on the subject of, ye must be born again. And he launches into the exact same message that he had just spoken on. And, you know, people are kind of a little puzzled and, you know, what's, what's going on? But they figured, hey, the guy travels thousands of miles every year by horseback. He, he preaches at hundreds of churches all of the time. So, you know, it'd probably be easy to forget, you know, which message you've preached when and, and where. And so they just kind of let it go. The next uh, service, uh, John Wesley stood up. He said, I'd like to speak to you today on the subject of ye must be born again. Well, by now, people are like, what in the world is going on? Because he launches into the exact same message. Well, uh, if I remember the story correctly, at the end of the third, the third time this happened, someone finally got up the nerve to uh, go up to John Wesley and said, uh, uh, Brother Wesley, we have thoroughly enjoyed your messages, uh, but, uh, but why do you keep preaching on ye must be born again? To which, reportedly, Wesley responded by saying, Because, dear sir... Ye must be born again. In my mind, that was going to be much funnier than it, than it went off. No, no, it's not. No. The point, apparently, that Wesley was making was that he didn't feel like that this church, where he, this particular church where he was preaching, that they were, that he didn't feel like that they still weren't getting this idea that he was trying to convey to them. And I guess he has, uh, figured there's no sense in moving on to something else till you get this one. <laughs> That is kind of a basic one. No sense, no sense moving on until I, till I get... To, well, today, I'm going to kind of pull a John Wesley on you. Now, I'm not going to preach the exact same message that I preached last week. But I am going to speak from the exact same text that I did last week. Or at least uh, the latter part of that text. Now, here's why I'm going to do this. One, because I believe the Holy Spirit is prompting me to do so. And I always be, want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and how he directs me and the messages that he has for you. Can, can I just stop and just say, I, I don't in the course of a year just say, let's see, uh, oh, what, what should I preach on? Uh, I, uh, ah, that'll work. Now, it's all the word of God, don't get me wrong, it's, it's all the word of God, but I prayerfully seek God's wisdom and direction for you. I don't, I don't have a chance to go to all of your lives and see what's going on and what's happening and the, and the heartaches and the trials and the tribulations and the triumphs and all that. Some of it I know, but I don't know all of it. But God does. And so I'm just of the belief that God might kind of direct me to what we need to hear in our lives. So I want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. second reason I'm doing this today is because of how all, what all went on in last week's service. You know, we spoke on the same text, but it was within the context of the Remember the big word? The ordinances of the church, baptism in the Lord's Supper. And it was just a full service. And I just didn't feel like I was able to adequately really deal with, with what I believe is a very, very important text 
for our lives, which then is the third reason why I'm speaking on this text. Like Wesley, I just figured there's probably no sense in moving on until I feel like you've got a pretty good grasp of what we're dealing with in Colossians chapter 3, particularly in verses 15 through 17. So I'm going to read that passage of Scripture in just a moment. And after I read that passage of Scripture, I'm going to ask you four questions. Now, let me just go ahead and say this. Uh, We won't get to all the questions today. I I refuse to rush through them. We'll deal with two today, Lord willing, and two next week, Lord willing. Well, really, there are five questions, but I'll explain that when I get to it. Um, Six. Do I hear six? No. (laughs) No. (laughs) I'll explain it when I get to it. But uh, so I'm going to ask you those questions. So here's a couple things I want you to do for me. Number one, you looking at me? Be honest. Be honest when you answer these questions. Now, I'm not going to ask you to answer these questions out loud, okay? But I am going to ask you to answer these questions to yourself. And if you won't be honest with yourself in the answering of these questions, then it won't make any difference. It won't matter. Oh, and by the way, we do tend to not be honest with ourselves when dealing with certain questions about our spirituality and our walk with Christ. Because either we don't want to think about how badly we're failing at this thing, or the idea of what it will take to overcome it and start doing it right just seems too, oh, I, I just, uh, to add one other thing to my life or to do, one, or to do something, it's just more than we can. And so I'll just tell you, at least from personal, we, we do tend to not be honest with ourselves at times. The other thing I'm going to ask you to do may seem a bit odd, okay? Go with it. (laughs) But if you have the capabilities today, I'm going to ask you to repeat these questions, and I'm going to give you this week and next week. I'm going to ask you to place them on some type of social media uh, outlet. Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, uh, Text Blast, whatever. I mean, right here today in church and everything, I'm giving you permissions to bust out your phones and text or post away. Some of you already do anyway, so it won't be much different. (laughs) Please put them on vibrate. Now, I realize, I realize, and I've never done this before. I just, I realize that by by asking you to do this, I, I risk losing you for the entire rest of the message as you're deeply in thought over the responses that begin to flood in. I realize I risk losing you, but I really just felt like that maybe this would be a good way for you to begin to engage others about what are some pretty interesting subjects and some pretty thought-provoking questions. So if you feel like doing that today, please uh, feel free to do so. I would ask, though, if if you do begin to get responses, uh, try to not look at them right now, you know, as much as possible. Try and, try and give me a few minutes. Um, Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. You may have a copy of God's Word with you. Please open there. Uh, the text also is up on the screen. And, uh, and we're jumping in the middle of this chapter. This is, by the way, the, I think this is the fourth week we've been in Colossians chapter 3. Probably shouldn't surprise you since I told you this is, this is my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. Um, and I'm just... just been pouring out to you what God, I think, has been, been teaching me through the years from this passage of Scripture. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, 
to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. First question is this, does the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in your heart, singular, you personally? Does the peace of Christ rule in your heart? Now, I I seriously thought about this. I thought, what if I just asked the question and then didn't say anything else for the rest of the message? I'm grateful I didn't get a praise the Lord to that. But, but I really thought about it. What, what if I just asked, put the question out there and don't say anything else? And we sat here for, for 20 minutes or so and just thought, does the peace of Christ rule in my heart? I don't know. That, 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 that might be a way to go. Again, uh, verse 15, uh, where, where he says this, uh, Paul says, and, and let. And notice the implication. Okay, and he does the same thing in verse 16 that we'll get to in a little bit. The implication is that, that this is within your power. This is within your control. Not, not your salvation, not that you earn your salvation, not that you, but this idea of the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful that... Uh, word called. Some of you may know that the New Testament was originally, when it was written, it was originally written in, in Greek. And the word uh, there that's, that's called is very close. Um, it's uh, eklathete, I believe is what, what it is. It's very close to the Greek word for, uh, for church, ekklesia. Uh, we are, we are the, the called ones. We're the gathered ones. The eklathete here called, it means called. We are the, the called ones, the, the body of Christ. And part of that calling includes a calling to the peace of Christ. And notice, ladies and gentlemen, it is the peace of Christ. Not the world's idea of peace, not your own idea of peace. Which, by the way, just go ahead and, and answer that one for you, usually means... If everything's going okay and nothing's wrong, then I have peace. That is very different from God's idea of the peace of Christ. Uh, The word in that text there, rule, um, means, basically means to preside at the games and to distribute prizes. It was an athletic term, actually. When Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And if you've read much of Paul's letters, you know that Paul was like a he was an athletic junkie, apparently. He, he uses all kinds of athletic analogies in his, in his letters. He talks about boxing. He talks about wrestling. He talks about um, uh, all kinds. Of, no, anyway, never mind. Um, and in verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule. And it's an, it's an athletic term. Um, in the ancient games, uh, Olympics and other types of games that they had uh, back then, there would be 
judges or what we would think of as umpires who would oversee the activities that were going on. And the umpires would disqualify people that uh, broke the rules. Maybe they got out of the lines in the run or they started too soon or, or whatever the case may be. But they would disqualify the people that broke the rules and they would give out the prizes, the awards to the people that won. So now think about that. Think about that context in verse 15. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The implication seems to be, I think what Paul is saying, ladies and gentlemen, is that the peace of Christ should guide or umpire your life. And that that's how you can determine whether you are in the will of God or not. Because everybody I talk to, Maybe it's just me, but everywhere I go and everybody I talk to that claims to be a Christian says, well, I, I, I want to I I be in the will of God. I want to do the will of God. I want to know the will of God. And Paul says, well, here's how you do it. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire that guides you. And if you are in the will of God, you will experience the peace of God. And if you get out of the will of God, intentionally or unintentionally, you will lose that peace. And, and, that's, and by the way, that's a good thing, because then that tells you, okay, I've missed God's will somewhere. I better, I better turn back and find out where have I missed God's will for my life. Does the peace of Christ rule in your heart? But be careful of a false peace. Be careful of a false peace. The world has a version of peace, but I'm telling you, it's plastic. It's artificial. It's not real. Because it will never deliver what God intends for you to have. For what God's idea of this ultimate peace. It's what I call if-then peace. Do you all know this kind of peace? If-then peace. If I'm dating the person I want to be dating, then I have peace. If my uh, wife or my husband is acting right or treating me well, or then I have peace. If the bills are paid, if the kids are behaving, if the diagnosis is good, if, 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 then I have some peace in my life. Does that sound familiar? I'm telling you, it's fake. It's artificial. It's temporary at best because it's, it's based on circumstances. And the peace of Christ is so very much more than that, ladies and gentlemen. So very much more than that. I remember... My call into ministry many years ago now. Seems funny how t- fast time goes. But I, I remember my call into ministry. And, and, I, and this, what I would call a struggle. Now, I don't believe that I ever ran from God's call on my life. But it was a struggle. Because I, you know, I was a little older than a lot of people are when they enter ministry at that point. I, I had a Great career. I'm not bragging. I just did. I had a great career. I, I, I was going to have to go back to school. I just, I, I've always felt like um, if I could get an education, uh, it was just important to prepare as best I could. And so I knew that was going to be three and a half to four years in college. And after that, I was off to seminary. Three, three and a half years to get a Master of Divinity. And then another three and a half years for a doctorate, although honestly, I wasn't even thinking that far ahead. But, but this was huge. I was asking my wife uh, to walk away from every ounce of security that we had. Everything. Oh, and uh, guys, newsflash. 
security is a big deal to women, okay? I was going to uproot my children, no house, no job, new city. It was a, it was a big deal. And, and I, can, okay, I was scared. I was scared. I wanted to do the right thing, but... So finally, I remember uh, praying. I finally came to this place where I just prayed, God, I think this is what you called me to. I think you called me to pastor your people and preach your word. I believe that's what you called me to do. So, Father, from this moment on, and I don't remember whether I said it out loud or not, but I, I just remember exactly what I said. From this moment on, I'm moving forward. I'm moving out with the belief that this is exactly what you've called me to do. And if I'm wrong, you can kick me in the behind. You can steal my sleep away from me. But most importantly, Father, if I am wrong, do not, do not let me have one second of peace in my life. But, Father, if I'm right, if I am on the path that I believe you've laid on my heart to do, to be in your will, I'm asking for your peace to come into my life right now. And, I, you know, I don't know if I would... Maybe it varies in, in intensity from time to time and all that kind of stuff. Maybe it depends on the severity of the decision we're making. I don't know. But I can tell you, in that case and in other cases where major decisions have come up in my life, I'm telling you, the second I prayed that prayer, a peace flooded into my life, ladies and gentlemen, that I, that I, I truly cannot, des- cannot describe. I, I literally cannot describe to you. But a peace flooded into my heart and into my life in such a powerful and strong way that I knew I was exactly where God wanted me to be. You, you don't want, I know you think you do, but you don't want the world's idea of peace. You really don't. It is a cheap imitation. It's a copy. And if you experience the peace of Christ, the peace of God in your life, you will never, ever settle for anything else in your life. You won't. Because it, it overpowers our fears. It overpowers our inadequacies. It overpowers our insufficiencies. It overpowers our doubts. And we know we're exactly where God has called us to be. Does the peace of Christ rule in your heart? Does it guide you? Direct you? Second question. Does the word of Christ dwell in your heart? Verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, we touched on this verse just a little bit last week, and we're not done with it. We'll deal with it some more again next week. But I mean, wow. This verse just does something to me. It just, it just blesses me. You may not be aware of this. You probably aren't aware of this. But quite honestly, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, has had much to do with what has been the dream that is cross-culture church. Because this, this is what I want to see. This is the church, ladies and gentlemen, at its very best. This is what the body of Christ should look like. Because it's not just individual. It starts individually with me, but, but it affects the entire body. And notice, it, it's not just the word of Christ dwelling within me. It's dwelling within me richly. The, the word 
richly. It's, a, it's an adverb. Plusias. Abundantly. Extravagantly wealthy. We're, we're talking Bill Gates rich, people. But it's a spiritual wealth that so fills my heart and my life that, quite honestly, it becomes my life. It's the word of Christ dwelling abundantly in me. Now, I, I mentioned this last week, but as far as I can tell, this is the only place in all of the Bible where that phrase, word of Christ, appears. Not only does Paul not use it again, nobody in the entire Bible uses that phrase again, the word of Christ. I think there has to be some type of significance to that. And I'm not even sure what all it is, but I know this much about it, that it's not just the intake of the word of God into my life, as important as that is. But it is the outflow of the word of God from my life. It is dwelling in me. It's not just scripture memorization that I put into my mind. This is into my heart and into my life. Think about a rich person. And I'm, I'm talking about, you know, Bill Gates rich, the fabulously wealthy. Their wealth allows them to have anything they want, does it not? Doesn't it? You want a yacht? Sure, kid, go get a yacht. <laughs> when I was a kid, I had a rowboat, and I had to row uphill both ways. No. It's, it's, can you imagine anything you want? I don't think there's anybody here in that category. I don't think there is. But could you imagine being at a place where literally anything you want, thought, that you just, it was, there was no, money was no object. Anything you wanted, you had. That's how wealthy people live. Think about this. I think that Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 is telling us that with the wealth of the word of Christ dwelling within us, you and I can have anything our heart desires. Because I'm sure as a follower of Jesus, your heart desires the wisdom of God. I'm sure as a follower of Christ, your heart desires the wisdom of God. I'm sure you want to get it right. I'm sure you want to act the right way, do the right thing, have the perfect family, have the, uh, the, the, the perfect person at work, have this. I'm sure that you want to be all of those kinds of things. If you're a follower of Jesus, please tell me that you want to honor Him with your life. <laughs> it's right in front of you. A limitless source of wealth for the Word of Christ, not just Taking in here, but dwelling in my heart and in my life. Does the word of Christ dwell in your heart? I just, all right, it's kind of, sometimes, sometimes, some of y'all couldn't make change for a dollar with the word of Christ in your heart and life. We can all get that way if we're not careful. I mean, look at it, folks. Look at this. I, I want this for my life and your life and our lives where, where his rich, his word is richly dwelling within us and all wisdom. You know what that means? That our lives on a daily basis, we're making decisions, our actions, our attitudes, our thought processes, all are being guided by the word of Christ that richly dwells within us. This is the kind of stuff that will turn the world upside down with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, rubbing up against each other, being part of the body, supporting each other, helping each other, confronting each other, whatever the case 
may be and all, and all the rest of it that we can deal with next week. But it's this, it's this beautiful picture of what this can be. Okay, now I'm going to get myself in trouble. I, I heard recently of someone that had left uh, cross-culture because we don't have a building yet. Um, and and two, I just had two thoughts that went through my mind when I, when I thought that. I said, well, yeah, we do. We, I'm pretty sure we, we do. Our name's not on the mortgage, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is that for about four hours every Sunday, this is not Leesville Road High School. This is Cross Culture Church. And then Cross Culture Church goes out from here. So I thought, well, that's kind of what I thought. Now it's kind of smart, I like thought, so that probably wasn't nice. But, but then I, I, I thought this. Because, listen, can I, okay, let me say this. Nobody, nobody wants to see us have a, a, a more permanent place that is the right space for cross-culture church than I do. Some of y'all that set up every week would argue with me about that and say, oh, no, I want it more than you do. <laughs> but listen to me. I'm right here with you every Sunday, am I not? I don't, I don't ask you to do something that Cindy and I aren't right in the middle with our sleeves rolled up too. Won't be here next week, by the way. It's, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. No, but so listen, I know, and I see it. I, I'm not blind to what you guys do. I see Chad roll in here every Sunday morning at 7.30, pulling that trailer that I know he has to hook up himself every Saturday night. And I see the C2 Kids workers unload stuff after stuff after stuff. And I see Joe and Bill and, and everybody else that's part of the cell. I see, I see everybody out hanging the side. I see the, the sweat of the summer and it's hot. And, and I know, I understand when, when it's all over and we say our men's and we go, we've got to tear it all down and load it all back in knowing we've got to do it again next week. I know it. I know it. And I thank God for each and every one of you. I, I, I truly, genuinely do. And I know it's hard. But as God is my witness, as long as I am the lead pastor of this church, buildings will never be the priority of Cross Culture Church. Because nowhere, nowhere in that description in verse 16 is there anything about a building. You're the church. We're the church. Hey, if we grow, if we fill up these seats, that, that other stuff will take care of itself. But our priority must always be to make fully devoted followers of Jesus. And that's what verse 16 is describing where the word of Christ richly dwells within me so that it's not just that I can recite John 3.16, I can actually live John 3.16. Not that I can just, can just uh, recite, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I can live the reality that there's no condemnation so I don't have to live with guilt and I don't have to live with fear and I don't have to live with rejection of any of those things because Christ has redeemed me and He's saved me and He's called me out to a life that is so, so much more than what we think our lives are or can be. I just finished a book while I was on vacation. Cindy gave it to me. She read it, and then I, I just finished. It's called Marriage in the Red, Transforming Your Marriage One Color at a Time. I, I, thought, I, thought, it was, I thought it was very well done. Um, it's written by the, actually the pastor of Cindy's dad's church down in Georgia. The guy's name is Dr. Levi Skipper. If y'all had a pastor with a name like that, he could probably preach, I suspect. And, and, and I thought it was great content in it, and quite honestly, Cindy and I may employ some of these things in, with some of the couples that, uh, that we work with. But the, the book follows the story of one couple whose marriage is in the red, m- meaning 
it is, it is on the brink of destruction. It is right at the door of divorce. And in a last-ditch desperation moment, they go and see the pastor. <laughs> they go and see the pastor, and the pastor assigns them a few things to do. Along with that is some passages of Scripture that he gives to them, and there's some assignments, but it's not just... He gives them some assignments with these passages of Scripture. And an amazing thing begins to take place as the Word of God begins to dwell in their hearts. It begins to to transform their lives. It begins to transform their marriage into what God would desire for them to be. It's the power of the Word of God. And again, I just can't got to say this to you one more time. It's not just memorizing it. So that, so that I can, it's, it's dictation, I can repeat it to you. No, it's dwelling in me richly. Does the peace of Christ rule in your heart? It's a great question to be asking yourself this week and asking others and see what their responses are. Does the word of Christ richly dwell in your heart? Let me say one more thing and then I'll close. And this is coming back around that idea of the peace of Christ because the word of Christ and the peace of Christ are, are intricately connected. You, you, I guess you understand that and so will the other two questions you'll see. But be careful of defining peace. I said it already but I'm just saying be careful of defining peace by the absence of conflict or, or trials or tribulations in your life. And be careful of thinking that you can create your own peace. Here's what I mean by this. Some of y'all may remember a few months ago, earlier this year, we did a series in the book of Jonah. And uh, God gave Jonah an assignment, and Jonah decided he didn't like that assignment. And so he headed in the opposite direction, went and got on a ship, going in the opposite direction from the direction God told him to go. Maybe you've read the story, maybe you know what I'm talking about. As the story goes on, it says Jonah went down into the hull of the ship, and the text says he went fast asleep, even in the midst of this raging storm. You may be at peace with the decision you make, but you better understand God's not at peace with the decision you make. I've had people tell me things like, uh, let's say it, this would be a very realistic one. A single person, a, a, a single woman, let's say a single lady that's uh, a follower of Jesus. She's not, uh, I mean, she, she wants to follow Jesus. And she meets, however she meets, uh, a young man. And she's kind of attracted to him. And that young man is not a believer in Jesus Christ. By the way, this is, I'm not talking about if somebody's married to someone that's not, stick with the story. And she, she is, is kind of drawn to this young man, and, and she begins a dating relationship with this young man. Well, uh, the Word of God is pretty clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked. Paul says, he says that's a relationship headed for trouble. Because you, you just don't have the same thing in common. You don't have the same values. You don't have the same thing. So, I mean, it, the word, word of God is kind of clear. Don't do it. And somebody will say to me, well, I, I've prayed about it. Y'all ever heard that? Well, I've prayed about it. And, uh, and I asked God that if he didn't want me to date this person, I've asked God to take my feelings away for that person. And, and he didn't do it, so, so I'm at peace with my decision. Listen, do you know what that is worth? Diddly. Diddly. Because prayer is not some magic bottle that we rub so the genie will come out and grant our wishes. Prayer is going to God in complete surrender and obedience to Him and seeking His desire and will 
for our lives. And when we do that and we surrender to his will and we, we are in the will of God, we experience the peace of God. And when the word of Christ richly dwells within us, it's a cool thing, man. Because you can make decisions without fear, without uncertainty, because you're moving forward knowing you're doing exactly what God wants you to do. Does the peace of Christ rule in your hearts? Does the word of Christ dwell in your hearts? Does the peace of Christ rule in your heart? And does the Word of Christ direct your heart? It's clear from today's message that those are two very important questions. And we hope today's message has helped you think more intentionally about where you are in your walk with Jesus Christ. As we learned today, just having peace in your heart may not be the same thing as having the peace of Christ in your heart. Recognizing the difference requires an honest evaluation of our life. And as Pastor Clay taught us today, We're all broken, imperfect people, but when the Word of Christ richly dwells in us, it directs our life, and we find new priorities and purposes for life. What a mighty Savior we serve. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. It is Q&A time at Cross Culture Church where uh, we take a question that someone has turned in and we try and deal with this. Uh, today's question is uh, it's interesting. You, most of you probably have never even thought about it, but clearly this was something that uh, was important to the person that asked it, and so I thought we should deal with it. Um, and I'll explain what it means when you read it in just a second. But the question looks like this. Is there a difference between usury, which the Bible says is wrong, and the interest that banks and other institutions charge? Now, usury is a, an old term. It's a, you find it in the King James Uh, translation of the Bible. And the question is, uh, and the way the question was phrased when they turned this in, uh, it it clearly implied that that usury, all usury, and I'll explain what that is in just a second, all usury is wrong. The Bible makes that clear, all usury is wrong. Well, no, actually it doesn't. Not all usury is wrong. Here's what the definition is. It looks like this. Usury is interest charged or paid on a loan. That's, it's an old term but that's what it means. It's the lending of money with an interest charge for its use. Uh, so the question is, is it wrong to do this? Is it wrong to charge people, to lend the money, and then to charge interest 
uh, for that money. Aren't you wondering? Say, yeah, I'm writing this down because I'm going to the bank Monday if this comes out the way I want it to. <laughs> the truth is, uh, it's not wrong uh, to, uh, to lend money and to receive interest as a result of that money. Uh, it's not, there's nothing wrong with that as a legitimate business. Um, here's why we know this. Here's a declarative statement I want to make to you this morning. Receiving interest from banks and investments is acceptable and therefore the charging of interest would also be acceptable since banks and lending institutions can't pay you money on, on your money unless they make money off other people's money that they have loaned to them. That was thoroughly confusing, wasn't it? <laughs> y'all, y'all catch that somewhere in there? If I'm a bank, I can't, I can't pay you interest on the money you put in my care unless I'm making money off of the other person that's asked to borrow some money from me. Well, how do we know that that's acceptable? Well, Jesus seemed to indicate that it was in uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 25, uh, in the parable of the uh, talents uh, and the wicked servant. Jesus said, thou oughtest, therefore, and this is King James, I'll give you the New American Standard in just a second. Thou oughtest, therefore, to have put my money to the exchangers. And then at my coming, I should have received my own with usury. So Jesus apparently was looking to get a little interest, you know, off, off of that. Here's the way it looks in New, New American Standard. I'm just, then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. So uh, the practice of lending money uh, and, and receiving interest as a result of that must be okay since you also can receive interest off money that you have placed in an institution like that. Now, when it comes to our individual lives and the idea of loaning people money, you know, I love to do that. What does the Bible have to say? Well, here's another uh, declarative statement on that. We should not charge interest when lending to family or friends. That certainly seems to be what the Bible indicates. In the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 23, I think it says, Unto a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon usury, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all that thou settest thine hand to in the land whither thou goest to possess. Aren't you glad we don't talk like King James anymore? <laughs> um, here's the way the uh, New American Standard puts it. You may charge interest to a foreigner, someone you're not connected to, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you are about to enter to possess. So there seems to be an indication there that if the person is connected to you, if your if your brother-in-law comes to you and asks for money, <laughs> you better think long and hard about whether you want to lend him any money to begin with. I'm just, and, and believe me, the scripture has something to do with that. But the whole idea of whether you ought to lend money or not. Um, but uh, the indication was for the nation of Israel that they should not charge interest uh, to their family members or those connected to them. Here's another one. Do not charge unjust or excessive interest. Um, Proverbs says this, He that by usury and unjust gain increaseth his substance, he shall gather it for him that will pity the poor. Or, uh, as another translation puts it, if you get rich by charging interest and taking advantage of people, and that's the key there, ladies and gentlemen, your wealth will go to someone who is kind to the poor. The indication is God knows what's going on. And um, so, take note of that. And then finally, uh, do not charge interest when lending to the poor. That's another uh, 
biblical principle that we seem to find. Again, in Exodus, if thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. Or if you lend money to my people to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him, you shall not charge him interest. So in in my personal um, financial dealings, if I should be so blessed to have just excess money sitting around that, uh, that I want to lend to somebody or something, that it's something that you need to enter into prayerfully and, and, and think about. But as far as an institution or a bank or that sort of thing, there's nothing wrong with the idea of uh, charging interest. There's uh, the Q&A for today.